Hello, I'm Philip Sales. In this video, I'm interviewing David Natzler, the senior clerk in the House of Commons Public Bill Office. David, what is the House of Commons Public Bill Office? It's an office of clerks uh, and officials, that is, in, in the House of Commons who deal with the passage of all legislation through the House of Commons. Can I begin by asking you some basic questions about the way Parliament works? Is there a new Parliament elected at each general election? That is what a general election effectively does. It elects a whole new slate of members of Parliament and members of the lower House of Commons. And what is the life of a Parliament? Well, the the maximum life of a Parliament is is five years, and that's a statutory um, limit, but it lasts until and unless the Parliament is dissolved. And how is it dissolved? It's dissolved by an act of the Queen, an act of prerogative, on the advice of her Prime Minister, and that brings on another general election. What is a session of Parliament? A session of Parliament is the period between prorogations, um, which sounds, sounds obscure but isn't meant to. Uh, it normally lasts a calendar year. It's started by a Queen's speech and it's ended by a prorogation, which brings the session to the end and has in particular the effect of ending all the legislation then in progress that hasn't been agreed by both houses. So is there a Queen's speech at the start of each session of Parliament? That is a very strong convention now, although technically not a necessity. And and what is the Queen's speech? Queen's speech is an opportunity for the government, through the mouth of the monarch, to put out its layout, uh, the legislative programme for the session ahead. Uh, so as to tell, originally to tell the nation, which may have had an idea already now as a result of leaks or, or draft bills and, uh, already published, but to give people an idea of what it is the government intends to put through both houses in the session ahead. What happens to a bill which is still making its way through Parliament when a general election is called? Uh, it dies. Uh, and therefore, at the end of each Parliament, as we just saw in April, there's a frantic attempt to salvage those bits of legislation that can be salvaged that are going through but haven't completed passage through both houses. And and how can they be salvaged? Usually by uh, very, very major surgery, lopping off large bits of it because they're only going to get through if everybody in both houses agrees to them. And is this what is called the wash-up? That is called the wash-up, absolutely. What happens to a bill which is still making its way through Parliament when a session comes to an end? Well, prorogation also, as I say, has the effect of killing off bills, so they also die under procedures recently introduced, they can, in the House of Commons, be revived by a motion uh, if notice has been given in the previous session that that's the proposition. So each year now, about three or four bills, or no more than that, are revived in the new session so that all the work that was done on them in the previous session is not wasted. Can we turn to the role of uh, officials, clerks, in the Public Bill Office in Parliament? Are there separate offices for the House of Commons and the House of Lords? Very much so, and you will be seeing my colleague Sarah Jones from the Lords Public Bill Office. When the government wants to take a bill through Parliament, how does the Public Bill Office first become involved? Well, the offices of both houses will first become aware of it in very much the same way as everybody else, by reading the manifestos if it's a general election year, um, or by reading the newspapers of what's likely to come. But the first thing that formally that that, uh, we get to see, or that I get to see, is a longish letter from Parliamentary Council um, setting out what the bill's going to do and asking a number of more or less technical questions about it to which answers are required. And who is Parliamentary Council? Parliamentary Council are the government's draftsmen. They're the people who actually write the bills. Um, And what are you asked about when you receive this letter from them? Well, a number of things conventionally, different things for different bills, different puzzles, if you like. Um, Not legal puzzles in themselves, because we're not lawyers, but matters to do with parliamentary procedure and practice. Uh, One area where asked questions is about money. 
because there are special procedures dealing with the impact that bills have on expenditure uh, and on taxation, and different resolutions are required and the bills bits of the bills that affect people in that way, that's to say impose a charge on the public um, or lead directly to expenditure, may be italicised if in the Commons, that's to say printed in italics, but also a resolution is passed to cover that sort of expenditure. We're asked about hybridity. Now uh, what is that? Well, hybridity is a sort of elephant in the room. It's the constant fear that by mistake you're introducing under the guise of a public bill what should have been introduced as a private bill because it is a bill that affects people of the same class, but different in a different way. And what is the significance if a bill is found to be hybrid? If a bill is found to be hybrid by the examiners, as they're called, who are officials like myself, if they find that it is hybrid, then it proceeds as if it was a private bill. And from the government's point of view, the main problem is delay, because the, the bill will then be submitted to, will be subject to being petitioned against by those who feel they have been unfairly treated and singled out, if you like. So within a particular class, um, they are not getting, uh, they are being disadvantaged. So that is going to cause delay and may well lead to uh, the bill being lost. So will Parliamentary Council um, make every effort to ensure that it's a public bill? Then? That is part of their skill, is to ensure they can do what they want while avoiding hybridity. And what other things are you asked about? I'm also asked about um, the need for what's called Queen's or Prince of Wales's, but mainly the Queen's consent it's a largely technical issue concerned with uh, the prerogative of the Crown being affected or her private interest, which the Crown does also have in, in some things. Um, but that is, that's largely technical. Um, I, I, we're normally asked about the titles of the bill. That sounds a very small point. That there are, A bill has a long title, not a very long title, maybe 100 words, and a short title. Uh, the long title is not usually, it's a description so far as possible as to what's in the bill, which is of Sarah of particular interest in the Lords. The short title is, tends to be of some interest sometimes to politicians. They would quite like to introduce bills called a making everything better bill, whatever. And we say, I'm afraid it's not meant to be a slogan, it's meant to be a purely objective description in as few words as possible that sums up what the bill is about as a whole. And that can be a, there can be a little quiet negotiation has to go on about that. Um, and finally, I'm asked about scope. That is to say, the, the government, ministers, that is, and their officials, are always interested in advance as to the, how widely amendments um, may be selected to the bill as being within scope. That's to say, in America, it's called germane, how far they're relevant to the subject matter of the bill as a whole. So they will inquire. And, for example, the energy bill, of which you will see some clips, um, there might have been an issue as to how far wider amendments about climate change might be allowed in, how far in discussing fuel poverty it wouldn't just cover the electricity and gas, which are the normal uh, energy sources used in fuel poverty schemes, but might cover people who, the many, many, many people who, who use uh, liquid fuels and so on. So they may explore that at this stage. It isn't really going to affect much what they put in the bill, but they're trying to give comfort to their political instructors. So is this something that determines what amendments may be introduced in Parliament? It doesn't determine it, but I try to anticipate helpfully for the government what it is the view is likely to be taken by the Speaker or the Chairman of a Public Bill Committee as to what is likely to be selected as being within scope or not. So and why is, that why is that important? Well, because from the government's point of view, take a rather distant example, um, when there was a, they wanted, the government were thinking of introducing a bill to remove the uh, remaining accepted hereditary peers from the House of Lords. Uh, and uh, it was quite public about this four or five years ago, 
but I think they were advised that a bill, even a small bill like that, might be susceptible to amendment, whether passed or not, that dealt with other aspects of how the House of Lords, the composition of the House of Lords. And the government may well have taken the view at that time that rather than risk having a bill that would then run for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, they wouldn't get away with it just being that simple, single, single-purpose bill. So it might affect politically their judgment as to when to introduce a bill and what to put in it. How do you work out what the scope of the bill is? Reading it. There is no other magic to it. It's like, I guess, how you work out what a poem is about. The only way to do it is to read it. And what happens if there's uncertainty about the scope of a bill and what amendments may or may not be introduced? Who, who decides on that? Well, in the House of Commons, and again, the House of Lords has, has different arrangements. In the House of Commons, if it's on the floor of the House, so that's the later stages of the bill, the Speaker will decide, ultimately. Uh, and if it's in, during the committee stage, the chairman of the Public Bill Committee, who is a quasi-speaker, is appointed as a neutral judge. But he, will obviously, he or she will obviously take advice from uh, the clerks in the Public Bill Office, who will talk to the draftsmen, who are also seen as being extremely knowledgeable about what and what is and what is not in the bill, and discussions then happen. And do you uh, advise also on matters affecting Parliament and its privileges? Yes. Um, sometimes the government uh, seems to proceed relatively unaware that Parliament is uh, an institution in its own right, um, together with the monarchy and indeed the judiciary, uh, and that um, maybe things have got into bills without anybody representing that this might have an unintended consequence for Parliament itself, uh, which as part of the Constitution has to protect itself. But that's fairly rare. Now, could I ask you to give us a brief outline of the stages which a bill goes through in Parliament before it becomes law? Yes, um, and uh, some of this is best illustrated uh, by brief, brief snippets photographically, although it's not particularly exciting. Um, first of all, the bill is introduced, and that's to say introduction and first reading. It's a purely formal proceeding, as you'll see, where uh, a whip says now and a, na a day is named for second reading, and that's it. You can't protest, you can't vote against it, uh, it has no effect at all. But that means it's then published and available to everybody, not just in Parliament, but on the website and widely and through the stationary office and so on. Secretary Edward Miliband. Energy bill. Second reading what day? Monday next. Monday next. Then the, f the big set-piece debate is at second reading, uh, where the principle of the bill is discussed, usually lasts a full five or six hours in the House of Commons, conventionally, uh, and it's a really a yes-no question. I mean, do you want the bill or don't you? And if there are bits of it you don't like and bits you do, a member really has to decide which way to vote. You can put down a reasoned amendment, but that really has to address the bill as a whole, and if it's passed, uh, then that's fatal to the bill. In other words, you either say yes, and anything less than a yes is, is a no. The clerk will now proceed to read the orders of the day. Energy bill, second reading. Now, the question is that the bill be now read a second time. Secretary Ed Miliband. Uh, Mr Speaker, I beg to move that this bill be read a second time, and today is an appropriate day to be discussing the energy bill at the opening of the Copenhagen conference and prior to the ministerial meetings in the second uh, week of the conference. But if, as is... And always the case with government bills, because they obviously enjoy the, the support of the majority of members in the House. The bill gets a second reading. It then gets committed, uh, which means it is sent to a committee. And there are two sorts of committee, either a committee of about 25 members that will then sit for a weeks going through having debates on the bill in a committee room upstairs uh, and amending it as it goes, line by line, clause by clause, or the committee of the whole House, 
um, which was a, an invention under the, the former Queen Elizabeth in the 16th century, partly as a way of getting the Speaker out of the chair. And it is chaired by a, by a senior member, but it just takes place on the floor of the House. All members can take part, and the proceedings otherwise proceed exactly as if they're in a committee upstairs. And that happens in particular for constitutional bills, bills of great significance for some other reason, or sometimes for very short bills that can be raced through because there's no great opposition or controversy about it. We now come to the main business. The clerk will now proceed to read the orders of the day. Energy bill not amended in the public bill committee to be considered. Now. now. Does first reading take place on the floor of the House? First reading does take place to the extent it happens at all on the floor of the House, yes. What happens after committee stage? After the committee stage, the bill is reported to the House and uh, there's a stage called report or consideration uh, where the whole bill is again open up for discussion on the basis of amendments and new clauses, but uh, rather more severely time-limited conventionally to about four or five hours. Uh, and so that it's a chance for big unresolved specific issues to be debated and to be voted on by the House as a whole, as opposed to being, having been voted on in the committee by a rather smaller, although representative, sample of members. And when that stage is over, uh, the House in the House of Commons, we have third reading, which is usually less than an hour, uh, on which effectively no amendment is possible and which is a largely formal stage in which people uh, have their last speeches on the bill and thank all the various people involved. And uh, uh, it is less exciting in the Commons than sometimes in, in the Lords. Third reading. Now. Mr Secretary of State Miliband. Uh, Madam Deputy Speaker, I beg to move that uh, this bill be now read a third time. I want to thank members uh, of the House for their contributions since... Second reading. And how does a bill pass between Commons and Lords? Well, it passes physically, rather surprisingly. In, in other words, it's wrapped up in, uh, if it's sent from the Lords to the Commons, uh, my colleagues there will wrap it up in a little bit of a red ribbon called ferret. And uh, one of their table clerks, let's say one of the clerks, like myself, with a wig and gown, will walk it down to the, to the Commons and deliver it. And we will do the same in, in reverse. Uh, but, of course, in practice, we have quite a lot of electronic devices to ensure the text pass seamlessly back and forth between the houses. And then it goes through, basically, almost exactly the same procedure in the second house. Um, politically different, and, as you'll hear, some differences in practice. But, basically, the same thing happens twice. Here we have the House of Commons considering amendments to a bill which were introduced in the House of Lords. We now come to the energy bill. Energy bill, consideration of Lords' amendments. Now... Now, we start off with amendment number one. With it, we committed to take amendments two to nine. Ms. Joan Ruddock. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I beg to move that this House agrees with the Lords in the said amendments. This is a message from the Commons to the Lords being read out in the Lords. message from the Commons that they have agreed to the amendments made by your House to the Children's, Schools and Families Bill without amendment, that they have agreed to the amendments made by the Lords to the Energy Bill without the amendments. And how does a, a bill become a statute? Well, a bill becomes a statute by getting royal assent, and that is very much a matter from my colleagues in the Upper House. What's the role of the clerks at each of these stages? The clerks are advisers to members, advisers in particular to the chair, that's to say to the speaker in the chamber, 
uh, or to the, the chairman of the public bill committee that will sit week after week. Um, they are also the intermediaries between government and parliament. Uh, and have a, most of our dealings are with parliamentary council, let's say the, the lawyers, the parliamentary draftsmen, rather than directly with the bill teams in the departments. Although in a public bill committee stage, there is obviously a lot of hither and thither between the two to help smooth the way and to help backbenchers and to help the opposition, to help everybody involved in making sure the process goes smoothly. But that doesn't mean without a lot of rows and opposition, because this is... This is, this, is not, um, this is not a bureaucratic procedure, it's a democratic one involving debate. And can you tell us how amendments for a bill are introduced? Anybody, once the bill has been read a second time, any member can seek to make an amendment or to propose an amendment. If the bill's in a committee upstairs in the Commons, only those who are on the committee have the ability to move it, so members will never bother to put amendments down on the paper if, if they don't have the chance to move it. So it's mainly in the committee their amendments are largely moved either by the official opposition, let's say the, the front bench opposite, so currently the Labour Party front bench on a subject. Sometimes government backbenchers may move the amendments, uh, not always popular. Uh, and the other main party that moves amendments, which may surprise you, uh, are the government that uh, the bill is, I'm afraid, because they're introduced e in ever greater speed and um, with ever less ideal time for preparation, is in a constant state of change from those who are actually sponsoring it. So uh, ideas that they've had and have maybe only come to fruition after the bill has been introduced and read a first time, uh, negotiations that have only finished, um, often someone's permission uh, to do something has not been finally got until too late. So the government will then come forward and amend its own bill quite heavily as it goes through. And at report stage, the same, the same is true. So basically, they, they look at the text of the bill, they find the, the page and line reference, and then they say what they want to do to it. And how is the debate on amendments handled? How, how are the amendments grouped together? In the Commons, and it, this is very different from the Lords, in the Commons, we have um, two particular um, techniques. One is called selection which is fairly obvious what it means, I'm afraid, that some amendments are not selected. They're not selected either, and that means they're not debated at all. And that's done on the authority of the Speaker, um, sometimes because they're simply out of order, they take, they're beyond the scope of the bill, they're trivial. Um, but generally, on the committee stage, most amendments will be at least selected. But there are hundreds of them, and many of them address, or will come to address, broadly the same point. So that's the, the second technique comes in, which is called grouping, whereby you avoid having a whole lot of repetitive debates, even short ones, and say all these um, 5, 10, 15, 20 amendments may be going in different directions, but are all bearing on the same obvious single topic of debate. So let's have a debate on that, in which the first amendment, the first one in the order in which it applies to the bill, is technically the one debated. And having disposed of that, we're not going to have lots more debates on the others, but if you really want to vote on the one, any of the others, you may have the facility to do so. So it avoids repetition. And who decides on uh, which amendments are to be grouped together? That is also for the chair, that's to say for the chairman in the public bill committee or the speaker when it's on report on the floor of the House. But again, obviously, as advised by us. So we, we, we propose groupings which are largely accepted. And most members understand the system. Some find it difficult because the order in which amendments are actually decided upon, as opposed to debated, relates to where they hit the bill. So you may have an amendment to Clause 3, which has been grouped for good reason with an amendment to Schedule 1, because let us say Schedule 1 is actually dependent on Clause 3. So you obviously debate them together, you determine the, the view on cla the Clause 3 amendment, but then you go on to a quite separate group led by an amendment from Clause 4. 
And someone will say, well, I want to have a vote on my amendment to Schedule 1, which is uh, also a different proposition, and I think I should be allowed to vote on it, although not another debate. They have to wait till they get to Schedule 1, which may be um, minutes, hours, or in public, public bill committee, even days later, that there will be a chance to get to that, because we go very carefully through the bill. And who decides how much time is allowed for debate on amendments? Well, in the House of Commons, um, the answer is, theoretically, the House of Commons itself um, will often pass what's called a programme motion, which will say, uh, for a particular stage of a bill, you have a certain number of hours, and sometimes will also provide for what are called intermediate knives, I'd say an hour and a half after this group has finished, that's when the votes will happen. Um, but in practice, it means it's the government's business managers, sometimes in discussion with the opposition, will have a pretty good idea. Um, so the thing is a managed process. But it does mean that sometimes there are groups of amendments uh, and parts of bills that are never really debated at all because of the lack of time or because some people would say too long has been spent on the earlier stage and not enough on the, the later stage. Are there differences in parliamentary procedure when we have a coalition government as we do now? No, Parliament uh, in that sense doesn't really recognise, um, hardly recognises the existence of parties at all. I mean, of course, realistically we know that's what, uh, what the, the British... Uh, parliamentary system depends on. Um, but we recognise only one important issue, that is, is someone a minister? And once you're a minister, you can do certain things by the rules of procedure, which you can't do if you're not a minister. So whether you're a Liberal Democrat or a uh, freelancer or a Conservative really makes no difference. So the, the political landscape has changed, but I'm afraid this railway line just travels on through it as if nothing had happened. David, thank you very much. Welcome to Sarah Jones, uh, who is a clerk at the House of Lords Public Bill Office. Sarah, we've heard from David Natzler how procedure works in the House of Commons. What are the differences in procedure in the House of Lords? Um, largely, the procedures are, are very similar. We go through the same basic stages for passage of bills. Um, one of the big differences to note is that uh, the House of Lords runs on a process of self-regulation. So whereas in the Commons, the speakers and the clerks play a role in selecting amendments or ruling something out of order, um, the same process wouldn't happen in, in the House of Lords. So whether amendments are considered uh, are really a matter for, for the House itself. Um, and it's for members to decide whether they want to, to carry something forwards or not. So it's a process of self-regulation, which is one of the main differences. And how do they decide that? Do they take a vote on things? Um, they can take votes on things. Very often, um, members uh, pay attention to the sense of the House. So um, if there's an amendment which perhaps may be slightly wider than the scope of the bill, um, we might alert the usual channels to that, and they may raise that at the start of the, the, start of the session. And then members get a sense from other members whether they, they feel they ought to press that. Um, and often negotiations are done off the floor of the House before, before that arises. If a bill is coming to the Lords from the House of Commons, how does the House of Lords deal with the passage of that bill? Um, it goes through the same basic stages as it would do uh, if it started in the Lords. So it will go through first reading, second reading, committee report and third reading. Um, and then at the end of the process it will send it back. It will either agree to, to the bill as it came from the Commons or if they want to make any amendments to it, we'll send those amendments back to the Commons for them to consider. What are the advantages of introducing a bill in the House of Lords? Um, largely no, no advantages really, as, as the, all bills have to be agreed by both Houses. Um, from the Government's point of view, they choose to start some bills in the Commons and some bills in the Lords at the start of the session, just so that you don't have one House sat doing nothing for several months and then swapping over and having the second House doing lots and lots of things. So it's really just a process of managing your bills so that um, there's roughly half in each and then you can swap, swap over. What happens if a bill passes through the Lords, goes to the Commons and is amended in the Commons? Um, the amendments would be sent back to the Lords to consider and they have the option of either agreeing to the Commons amendments, they can disagree to them 
um, they might agree with consequential amendments or, or send back a reason why they disagree with them. Um, but the basic um, uh, basic premise to, to realise is that agreement has to be reached on every single word in the bill. So they will pass it backwards and forwards until they've either disagreed or agreed to all of the amendments. And what happens if agreement cannot be reached? Um, if agreement can't be reached by the end of the session, then the bill will, bill will fall um, and the bill is no longer... And when does the Parliament Act come into operation so that the House of Commons can get its way? If, um, if the Commons introduced a bill in one session and the Lords failed to agree to it in the, in the same session, um, the Commons can introduce the same bill the second session. And as long as a few um, certain stipulations are met, then in that second session, if the Lords still don't agree, then it will, it will pass royal assent without the Lords' agreement. What happens at the committee stage in the House of Lords? How is that different from in the House of Commons? Um, the main difference is that uh, the Lords don't have a public bill committee and um, mostly bills are considered in the Chamber, with a few exceptions. Um, uh, one of the main differences is that we don't have selection of amendments. Um, so whereas in the Commons the, the Speaker would, would select certain amendments and others wouldn't be considered, all amendments tabled in the Lords have to be considered um, and they can be debated and pushed to a vote if members wish. Um, if they are pushed to a vote, it's not just members of, of a committee that, that vote, but all members in the House can, can vote in those. Um, and often more votes are likely and more government defeats are likely in the House because uh, the whipping system isn't as, as strong in the Lords as the Commons. What happens at the report stage in the House of Lords? Um, one of the differences is that uh, we take report and third reading separately, so um, members may have big votes on big issues at report stage and then there's another chance to, to do any tidying up amendments at, at third reading. So it's a similar process to committee stage where you have amendments, um, debate them and, and vote on them, but you do get another chance to do it again at third reading if you want to. Can you tell us what happens at Royal Assent? How does that work? Um, well, as a bill gets close to the end of its passage through, through both houses, our office will uh, make the necessary arrangements to get the final copy of, of the Act ready. Um, that means we work quite closely with Parliamentary Council to ensure that we've got all of the amendments agreed in both houses, put into the bill in exactly the right place and the right order. Um, we also liaise with the Crown Office, which is a, a sort of subsection of the Ministry of Justice, which is housed in, in Parliament, and uh, we'll prepare a list of bills that are coming ready to the end of their passage. That gets sent to Her Majesty the Queen to, to sign her, her official uh, royal assent that she agrees to these bills becoming Acts. Um, once we have that back, um, once the bill's finished its, its passage through both houses, the Crown Office will uh, produce her royal seal, and then at the end of the process, um, her royal assent is signified to both houses, um, usually by the speakers who get up and say that she, she's, assent, uh, she's agreed to, uh, for these acts to, to go through. Sure. Sarah, thank you very much.